This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. When I would read Charlotte's journal entries, her letters, her emails, she suffered so much saying, is this the time for tough love? Should we cut them off financially now? She did every possible thing to save her son. And he was manipulated beyond belief. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories. And now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author Mark Pinsky wrote a book called Drifting into Darkness. It's a harrowing story about the murder of a couple in 2004 in Montgomery, Alabama. Their estranged son was the killer, so this isn't a whodunit, but why? What is life like for the Springford family in Montgomery in 2004? Who does what for a living, and what are the family dynamics? This is a family that is really plagued by tragedy for multiple generations. Charlotte Springford is a daughter of a PepsiCo bottler in a town called Luverne, Montgomery, outside of Montgomery. And he was very successful. The family had multiple businesses in Luverne. And Charlotte grew up in privilege. She traveled. She went to the University of Alabama. She got a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. Then she went to teach in Pensacola, where she met a young flyer named Brent Springford Sr. And they met and they married. And they were looking forward to a really prosperous life. Charlotte had several miscarriages. And she finally was able to have a child, a daughter, also named Charlotte. And about the age of two, the parents decided it was time for them. They were able to take a small vacation. So they left their daughter with her father and stepmother and her sister back in Montgomery. And there was a tragic fire. And in the fire, the toddler daughter was killed. Her father was killed. Her stepmother died. And her stepsister barely survived climbing out of the house and lost a leg in the process. Wow. What that meant was the Springsters had to change their whole plan for the trajectory of their life. And rather than do something exciting, Brent Sr. had to come back and run the bottling company in Luverne. After several more miscarriages, Charlotte had a son, Brent Jr., and later a daughter, Robin. And they were also raised in privilege. But Brent Sr. and Charlotte were extremely philanthropic. They were good parents. They were caring parents. They had wealth, but they were also philanthropic, and they gave to a number of causes in Montgomery. The four of them traveled. The parents and the children traveled around. But they were also, when they traveled, they were not typical tourists. They employed local guides. And if they came upon people who were trying to better themselves in one way or another, that they could help, they would do things like buy a refrigerator for a merchant in India or something like that. Hmm. So these were good, solid people doing the best they could. 
They were very engaged parents. They were involved parents. Both children went to the best private school in Montgomery, the Montgomery Academy, and both parents were involved in the raising of their children. Now, when all of this is beginning to happen, how old is everyone? How old are Charlotte and Brent before they die? They were in their 50s. And how about the kids? How about Brent Jr. and Robin? At the time of the crime, Brent Jr. was 24, and I believe Robin was 22. Tell me about their relationship. Did they have a nice sibling relationship? They're only two years apart. They had a very good relationship. They were in the same school. They had some of the same friends. As they got in up through high school, their social groups sort of intersected because they were close enough in age and and their friendships. And so they were often parties at the Springford home, which was a kind of, we could say, a mansion, I would think. (laughs) Okay. In the Garden District of Montgomery. And the parents liked to have the kids close when they socialized. They thought it would be safest to have the parties at their house. Okay. To the point where when they were in their upper teens, the family kind of looked the other way when alcohol was consumed at these parties. Later, they looked the other way when weed was consumed at the parties. And Brent Sr. often joked that when he was in college, he used weed and he was in a rock and roll band. They were very, I won't say permissive, but they were understanding. One time, Brent Sr. walked into Brent Jr.'s bedroom and he was having sex with one of his classmates. And Brent Sr. just sort of tiptoed out and didn't make a big deal about it. Do you think there is any inkling that there's anything amiss with either of these two kids of theirs? Not at all. The kids did not give them any reason to have concerns. But I should say that Charlotte had a secret fear, and the secret fear involved her family history. For three generations, the family had been plagued with bipolar disorder, and there had been hospitalizations, there had been suicides, there was alcoholism. But Charlotte made a decision when the kids were growing up not to share the family history with them. She was afraid, I think, that the kids would think, particularly Brant Jr. would think, that it might be self-fulfilling prophecy. And this was something that they couldn't avoid. Hmm. So she made the decision not to share the family history with them. So as the kids were growing up, there was no reason to be concerned. They were socially successful. The parents imparted to the children a kind of altruistic impulse. And both the children carried that on. They volunteered for things. If there were other students in their school who were new or who weren't embraced by social groups, they would often single them out to include them and invite them to the party. So there was no real inkling of any difficulty with either of the children all through high school. So Brent Jr.'s 24 and Robin's 22 when we're approaching this event that's happening. Are they close to their parents as adults? Through high school, they were very close with their parents. Brent Jr. was beginning to think maybe he wanted to broaden his vistas, that perhaps Montgomery and Alabama were too provincial for him. So he applied to a number of Ivy League colleges. He was not a super student, so he was well-qualified, but he didn't get into the Ivy League schools. He did get into Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, a perfectly respectable place. And so he went to Vanderbilt. And in his final years of high school, Brent Jr. had developed an interest in Eastern religions, particularly Buddhism and Hinduism. When he went to Vanderbilt, he began taking courses in world religions and approaching the subject very seriously. And his teachers liked him. He participated. He joined a fraternity. He did various projects during the break time, during the year when Vanderbilt would sponsor summer programs in Latin America. He would go and he would help build bridges and do various things. So again, no sign of any problems through his first two years at Vanderbilt. His study became more serious. But toward the end of his sophomore year, he decided that he was really 
constricted, both in the academic setting and in the, the provincial setting of the South. And so he came to his parents and said, I want to do some more systematic study of Hinduism and Buddhism by going to various retreat centers around North America, Mexico, and the U.S., and I want to take a year off. And he was even supported in that by one of his teachers at Vanderbilt, who said, this happens a lot for young men at that age. They want to pursue it on their own. And he endorsed the idea of taking a year off for Brent Jr. to go around. His parents were a little concerned. Nervous. <laughs> how parents are. I mean, I've gone through that as a student and as a father, frankly. But they said, OK, and they agreed to underwrite it. The summer before he left, he worked for his father in the bottling company. He didn't like it, but he thought that was part of paying for the opportunity to go and study Hinduism and Buddhism. As it happened, though, one year stretched into two and a half or three years. Mm. And so he continued to go to these places in the U.S. and Mexico and his mother was so devoted to him that when he would come home with a stack of books about Buddhism and Hinduism and to some degree New Age religion, his mother would buy the same books oh, wow. and read the same books while he was reading those books. When he was in his sort of spiritual odyssey across the country, he would write back about what a wonderful place he was. On several occasions, his mother actually went out and joined the retreat and met the people that he was studying with. She was that devoted to him in a very sort of understanding way or trying to understand. As he was kind of drifting a little bit from the established path that his parents had hoped for him, his mother did her absolute best to stick with him and to understand where he was in his journey. I do not understand how we go from very supportive parents and well-adjusted children and a son who's exploring different options but seems to be very well-adjusted. How do we then end up at Thanksgiving weekend 2004 where so much tragedy happens? The problem was Brent Jr. wanted enlightenment. He wanted it so deeply. He read so many books about people who encountered some spiritual guide or some revelation in their life, and it didn't happen to him, and it plagued him. He kept writing to his mother and writing to his girlfriend and writing to his friends that he wanted to become himself a Buddha. Mm -hmm. He wanted to become a Buddha himself. He wanted spiritual enlightenment and it wasn't happening for him. And his quest became more and more frantic. And we think in retrospect that that was the beginning, the incipient symptoms of bipolar disorder. Okay. Bipolar disorder intersected with his spiritual search and he became more and more frantic to find that enlightenment that everyone else that he seemed to have read about had happened. So his parents obviously wanted him to go back to Vanderbilt, which he rejected. He then had met someone from Oberlin College out in Ohio who said they have a good program there. So he offered his parents Oberlin. His parents, Oberlin was not Vanderbilt, but they said, okay, let's try it. And he applied late. His father pulled some strings. He got in. His mother went out there to help him find an apartment. And a week after she left, he told them he changed his mind that Oberlin really wasn't for him. So he said he had another idea. His idea was to go out to Boulder, Colorado and enroll in Naropa University, which is a Buddhist university, reputable Buddhist university. His parents were skeptical and concerned, but in the end, they agreed. And so he went out to Boulder and he enrolled in Naropa and he did very well there at first. He was surrounded by people like him, and he thought he was edging closer to that enlightenment that he so desperately sought. 
Now, with his fervent desire for enlightenment, and he keeps running into a brick wall and becomes more and more frustrated, obviously he's in communication often with his parents and his sister. Did Charlotte, his mother, not pick up on these red flags, knowing what her family history is? She was torn. She knew what the family history was, but she was hoping against hope that she could save him from that. And at the same time, he was on this spiritual search. And I don't think his mother was able to separate those three strands. She wasn't sure what was happening to him. Was it normal separation? Was it incipient bipolar? Or was it his spiritual search? And so she was hesitant to take any or attempt any dramatic action. So she's always stayed close. She always kept the lines of communication open. She always gave him the benefit of the doubt, even when her husband, his father, was more skeptical, but she kind of held him off and kept staying as close as she possibly could. The letters she was writing to him at this time are really, for any parent, heartbreaking. I mean, she was really doing everything she could to keep him close to her and to support him and not let him drift off. I can't imagine that Brent Sr., his father, was willing to just sort of forever fund whatever whims that his son went on. Was there an endgame? Did the parents say enough is enough at some point with Brent Jr.? Yes, but they stuck with him for another couple of years. A critical point happened out in Boulder. Brent had met a young woman graduate student at Naropa. She had a note up on the bulletin board, and they became roommates. There was no romantic relationship between them, but she was very experienced in the Naropa life, and Brent looked up to her. And as it happened, her parents also lived in Boulder. They were also involved in New Age activities and Eastern religions, and they had a sort of informal salon at their house in Boulder. And so this roommate invited Brent to come over to their house. And he became friendly with the family. The father, unfortunately, was ill and was dying. And Brent, because he was such a a naturally altruistic person, just sort of volunteered to be a respite caretaker for this man who he really didn't know. But he saw he was in distress. And Brent would often come over in the evenings and spend the night with this man, sleeping on the floor next to him so that his wife could get some break in coverage. So on one occasion, Brent was over there in the salon and his path crossed with a woman named Caroline Scout. Caroline Scout claimed to be a Native American shaman. And she lived in Wyoming, but came down to Boulder about once a month. She gave sort of spiritual breathing classes for $100 an hour to groups. And Brent was quite taken with her. The first time Brent met her at the salon, he got down on his knees and he put his forehead on the floor and said, I've met my spiritual guide. Wow. And thereafter, he took the breathing courses. He wrote a paper about Caroline Scout for his Naropa class about her spiritual journey as a Native American shaman. He just came under her sway. She didn't approach him. He approached her. She didn't seek him out. Hmm. At first, she was a bit embarrassed by this sort of fealty that he was pledging to her. Young man, I mean, just falling all over her, I'm sure. Right. He didn't realize it for whatever reason, but she was, I think, twice his age, but it didn't occur to him. But he became more and more not enamored in a romantic way, but in a spiritual way to her. And she got used to that, and she liked having him as a customer in her breathing classes. And she suggested, or he suggested, we're really not sure about this, that after the spring semester ended at Naropa, 
that he would go up to Wyoming to where she had a small ranch and learn about Native American customs and help be a caretaker on her ranch. Brent approached his parents and asked what they thought about that. And they seemed to think it was an okay idea as long as he would promise to go back to school when the summer was over. And so they agreed. He went up there. He began doing chores. And as they always have done, Brent's parents decided to get close to what he was doing. So they flew out to Boulder and met Caroline Scout there and later made a second trip to Wyoming to spend some time with Brent during the summer to see how he was doing. Now, a number of things happened. One of the things that happened was Caroline Scout told Brent's parents a great goal of hers was to build a counseling center for abused Native American women and children and to build it in the style of a big lodge. She already had the plans for the lodge. She had a pad that was put down, a concrete pad, and she basically asked them for $50,000 wow. to help finish the counseling center. They said they would consider it, and they went on from there. Then they went to a Native American festival with Brent Jr. and Caroline and the two parents, and Brent Jr. had a meltdown at this Western called powwows, a gathering of Native Americans. And he basically acted so weird that both Caroline Scout and his parents had to apologize to the Native American elders for him acting so weird. There was a circle and he began chanting and he began talking about all weird different things and kind of dominating the conversation. So when his parents left, they were kind of concerned, obviously, by this episode. And Brent Jr., to kind of mollify the damage he had done, spent a lot of money on gifts and meals for the Native American elders to smooth over this episode. So their relationship is developing, but it's never a physical relationship or a sexual relationship between Caroline and Brent Jr.? No, but at some point, Caroline drives Brent Jr. across the state line in South Dakota. They go to Deadwood, South Dakota, which is restored old Western town. And they were secretly married. Brent Jr. later said, I don't know why we did this. It was Caroline's idea. And Caroline said, don't tell your parents about this. And so they were secretly married, but in no sense was it a physical relationship between the two. It started weird and it got weirder. Where does this all lead to, Mark? This is going somewhere very bad, I know. Their relationship is deepening on a spiritual level, not a physical level. It sounds like his bipolar disorder is becoming more developed and he is experiencing different stressors. He's trying to get his parents to pay for something that's very important to him. I imagine that at least Brent Sr. is becoming a little more frustrated as time goes on that things are not going the right way for his son. Yes, but it was a little divided because on a couple occasions, Brent Jr. went home to Montgomery. For the, it was a family Christmas party that they gave for 100 people every year. And one year he came back and he had shaved his head. He was wearing a monk's robe and he appeared at this fancy dress, black tie Christmas party, which was one of the social events of the season in Montgomery and made everybody kind of roll their eyes. Hmm. And so when he went back, by this time, his parents were basically treating Caroline as a unofficial caretaker, and they were sending check after check after check. And so it started out with $5,000 and then 
$20,000. And then they were buying cars for Caroline's adult children and paying tuition. Both the parents were having doubts. Charlotte wrote her friends that, yes, I know people think that this woman is a gold digger. Mm -hmm. I understand that, but we're getting something from this. She is taking care of Brent. She had finally gotten Caroline to take Brent for psychiatric care, initial psychiatric care. And she never said this, but I got the feeling from reading her correspondence of the time that one of the things she was grateful for Caroline is that she kept Brent out there. Oh. She kept Brent out of Montgomery. She avoided any more embarrassing situations. And at some point they decided that when he decided not to go back to Naropa in the fall and stayed through the winter, they didn't like the idea of him being in Wyoming. They didn't think he could get the right kind of psychiatric care. Okay. So they offered to buy them a house in Greeley, Colorado, not far from Boulder, where they would be closer to much more sophisticated psychiatric care. And so the lure was, we'll buy you this house. And they bought a house for half a million dollars. And weirdly, again, Caroline moved in. She moved in her two adult and one adolescent daughter but she left Brent back in Wyoming working on oil rigs in South Dakota and taking care of her ranch. And poor Brent, he was hearing voices. He was almost falling off of oil derricks. He was hearing celestial noises. He was deteriorating then. He was. And the animals on the ranch were dying because he neglected them or left gates open. And so finally, it was decided by Caroline, I think, it was time for Brent Jr. to come and join them at this new house. So Brent did go down there, did move in, but he only moved in in a manner of speaking. Caroline wouldn't let him, much less in her bedroom, she wouldn't let him live inside the house. (sighs) He built an area in the garage, the adjoining garage, and he was not permitted to come into the house unless he called first for permission. He had a hot plate out there. He had a single bed out there. Things were just really getting worse. And his mother didn't know about this living arrangement. She only knew that he had finally agreed to move into the house and he was seeing a psychiatrist. She didn't know about all this other strangeness. And the checks kept coming and the demands kept escalating. They did at one point finally say that they had looked at the plans, the architectural plans for this counseling center. And Brent's architect said, this is not a sound facility. You shouldn't put any money into it. Wow. Okay. So what was Brent's decision? Did Brent Sr. say, okay, that's right. That's fine. Brent Sr. said, we'll continue to pay upkeep, but I'm not going to give this woman $50,000 to build this counseling center. Okay. When that decision was communicated, both Brent and Caroline blew their stacks. Oh, boy. And you can see in his letters and emails, Brent becoming increasingly unhinged. And if you read the communications, they're coming from Brent Jr., but the tone and the hostility in retrospect was clearly Caroline's. It's clear to me that she was telling him what he should say to his parents. Hmm. And it was becoming increasingly hostile, demanding, entitled. It was like Brent and behind him, Caroline, basically were seeing his parents as an ATM machine and not much more than that. And she's obviously cutting off communication. I mean, is he even speaking to his mom over the phone at this point? No. All the communication is written. Caroline doesn't pass the phone calls through to Brent Jr. So if they want to communicate, they have to either speak with Caroline or receive written communications from Brent Jr. And the isolation is becoming greater and greater. 
And this is obviously something you touch on in the book, on how this is common with victims of domestic violence. He was a victim of at least manipulation and abuse, is this isolation, right? Yes, and she was giving him all these physical tasks to do around the new house. And he did everything she said and more. He was digging in the backyard what he called a worry hole. He had a miner's lamp on his head, and late at night, he would dig this great big hole for no reason, just because he was digging a hole. When people asked him, he said, well, in case one of the horses dies, we can put it in there. And it was like, I mean, they clearly called it a worry hole. He just, as his anxiety increased, he just began doing stranger and stranger things. And all the spiritual stuff that had drawn him to Caroline seems to have just wasted away. And she, if you read some of Brent Jr.'s journal entries, she kept beating him down, telling him he was nothing, he was worthless, he was self-centered, he was egocentric, and he just took it. He never, because he had so much trust in her and faith in her, he thought, well, she's right. I am a piece of crap, essentially. So give me the time frame here from the time he meets Caroline till what happens with his parents in 2004. From their first meeting until the telltale Thanksgiving weekend of 2004 was about five years. So what is the switch that was flipped that turned this violent? Was it Brent Sr. saying, I am not going to fund this counseling center for Caroline? Is that what triggered all of this? There were two things that triggered it. His sister Robin was getting married to a high school sweetheart. And Robin had also gone to Vanderbilt, had graduated, had gone to graduate school. As Brent Jr. was becoming more troubled, she was becoming more the perfect daughter. And so they had planned this wedding. And Robin, his sister, had always kept up communication with him, not at the same level as his mother, but kept up good communication with him. And she asked him if he would come to the wedding. And he was flattered and he agreed. But as Brent Jr.'s condition continued to deteriorate, the family came to a decision that it would not be a good thing for Brent to come to the wedding. They were afraid he might show up with a machine gun or he might disrupt it. And it was going to be one of the social events of the Montgomery season. And so the parents reluctantly spoke to Robin and Robin disinvited her brother to the wedding. And that was a real blow to him. Around the same time, Brent Sr. had decided he had had enough. He and his wife had been played for a sucker by this woman and that he was not going to continue to support these increasing demands. And so they announced just before the wedding to them that they were no longer going to support them financially. At all? The house? Nothing. They were going to take all this stuff away. The status of the house was unclear. The house was purchased in the name of the parents, in the name of Charlotte and Brent Sr. And I always felt in retrospect, they were holding that as a card to play to get Caroline to get Brent Jr. into a residential psychiatric program. Hmm. Charlotte had already put Brent Jr. on the waiting list at Harvard and at Duke and a number of programs to get in. These are very expensive programs, obviously. To treat bipolar disorder. Right. But inpatient, no more evaluation and out. Okay. But it looked like that wasn't going to work. So Brent Sr. finally had enough and said, I'm cutting you off. I'm cutting the credit cards off. They made no specific mention of the house, but the cash was going to start. Six weeks later, Brent Jr. gets on a bus from Boulder, taken to the bus station by Caroline, and takes several buses through the night to Montgomery. He gets off the bus in Montgomery and runs the two miles to his old house in the Garden District of Montgomery. He sees there's no one there, lights are out, but he knew there was a window in his sister's old bedroom where they could go in and go out without setting off the burglar alarm. 
So he climbs up the trellis onto the second floor, punches out a window, climbs in, and waits at that point. They didn't come home that night, which was the night before Thanksgiving, but he laid in wait and some strange things happened. For some reason, a burglar alarm did go off. Two Montgomery police officers came out to the house and found nothing, left the tag and went home. Some of the neighbors later said they had heard some noise and saw some lights and went over but didn't see anything. Apparently, Brent Jr. saw there was activity, slipped out of the house, hid in the backyard while people looked around the house and then went back in the house. He spent the night there in the house as if he wasn't troubled enough. He saw that his sister Robin's room was exactly as she had left it, but his bedroom had become a storage closet for his mother's clothes. So he felt, again, he had been displaced and almost erased from the family. So you can imagine how that night was for him. So mid-afternoon, the next day, after a Thanksgiving brunch in Birmingham, his parents pulled up in his dad's Jaguar. His dad had a weakness for driving fast. His father was stopped for speeding on the way from Birmingham back to Montgomery. They went in the back door by the kitchen and exactly what happened, the order of things is not clear because we have three different versions. But at some point, very early on, Brent Sr. walked up the back stairs where Brent Jr. set upon him furiously with an axe handle. Brent Sr. was bigger than his son. He was trained in martial arts, but apparently he did not see that coming. And he was battered to the floor before he knew what happened. Brent had also, in addition to sawing the head off the axe to get the axe handle, he had taken a steak knife from the kitchen and he stabbed and slashed his father's throat and dragged him into the closet. At some later point, we don't know what his mother heard, what Charlotte heard, but she went upstairs and apparently didn't notice what had happened. And Brent set upon her in the master bedroom. She saw him coming and their defensive wounds that she tried to protect herself and save herself. But she went to the floor and even there are signs that she tried to drag herself toward the telephone, Mm. at which point he used the steak knife to finish her off as well. Shortly thereafter, he went downstairs, he rifled the house. He may have taken some cash, but may not have hashed because later when police inspected, there was $20,000 in cash in various places left around the house. This was the kind of family they were. Wow. So Brent got in his dad's Jaguar and headed north and west. Does he stage the scene at all? I mean, is he trying to make this look like a botched home invasion or anything? He scattered some things around the floor, but it was really a half-hearted effort. Okay. It wasn't a serious effort. He emptied some bags of groceries on the floor, but I don't think he gave a lot of thought to that. And he had, as a criminal, as a murderer, he had the good fortune of not leaving any physical evidence. For all the blood, for all the struggle, all that was left in the house when he left that could tie him to the house was a fingerprint. But the fingerprint was not in blood. And since he grew up in that house, the fingerprint had no value. His clothes and his shoes, his boots, he left boot prints and his clothes must have been blood spattered. But on this furious drive north and west through the countryside, He threw his clothes away, he threw the boots away, and he didn't remember where he had thrown them away, somewhere between Montgomery and Tulsa, and they were never recovered. Hmm. So there was no physical evidence at that point to connect him to the murder. Of course, when the police came to the murder scene, all Brent and Charlotte's friends said, look for Brent, see where Brent was. Who else would it be? Right. What I'm curious about is what is the motive here? 
Is it pure anger and revenge or is it some bigger scheme knowing that maybe he was a beneficiary on life insurance? Why take this risk at all? That's a very troubling question. For Caroline, I mean, this is Caroline. It's her idea. Isn't she thinking more logically than this? There are two answers. One is Brent's answer. Brent Jr.'s answer, he gave three detailed confessions, two in writing, one on tape, and they were all different. Oh, that's what you meant by three different versions. I was wondering what you meant by that. He kept saying he wanted a reconciliation with his parents. And he thought that if he went back, he could have a reconciliation with them. But that seemed so at odds. And then he said he was shocked by the fact that his parents didn't welcome him home when they first saw him. We're not sure exactly where they first saw him. But in one account, he said they saw him and they said, what are you doing in this house? Hmm. And he said that his father said, get the fuck out of my house. And at that point, in one account, he said he felt like he had left his body and that a demon who he called Akasha, a spirit demon, had taken over his body and that Akasha was the one who had committed all these murders. That's on Brent's side. On Caroline's side, we have testimony and evidence that this was all her idea. Yeah. That she had hatched the plot, that she had coached him in what to do. She then drove him to the bus to go and picked him up when he came back and later provided him with a false alibi for what that time was. We have different interpretations of that. Caroline, in my view, was both stupid and cunning, which is to say she was stupid in that she thought that even if Brent Jr. was convicted of murder, even if he was executed, that because they were married, she and her family would become the successors in interest of the parents' estate. Hmm. Well, in no state in this country can you benefit from a crime. That's English common law. Mm -hmm. But she was convinced of that. And up until the very end, when she said, if you're executed, we'll come out and see you, her notion was that she was going to get this money somehow. And after Brent was arrested and after he was being prepared for trial, Caroline kept contacting the defense team saying, what about the estate? What's the, what's the status of the estate? Tell me about the real Caroline Scout that I'm sure unravels once Brent Jr. is arrested. And she's arrested too, I'm assuming. Nope. What? She's an accomplice. Well, the thing is that there was no evidence that she was an accomplice. Hmm. Brent Jr. was so under her sway from the time he was arrested until the time he pleaded guilty, he would not roll on her. He could probably have gotten a much better deal than the deal that he got if he was willing to roll on her as being the architect or the intellectual author of this crime, but he refused to do it. Absent Brent's testimony, there was nothing at all to connect Caroline with the crime other than the false alibi she gave him, which she then got a lawyer and rolled back and said, oh, I didn't understand. I was confused. And so the only charge she might have been subject to would be accessory after the fact to murder if she provided a false alibi right. to Brent Jr. But he wouldn't corroborate that and her adult children wouldn't corroborate that. And so they had nothing on her. Plus, in the end, the trial was in Montgomery and she was in Colorado. And what she would have done if they could prove she had done it, she would have done in Colorado, even though the murder trial took place in Montgomery. So there were all sorts of legal difficulties to charge her and they couldn't and they didn't. She then leveraged her sway on Brent Jr. with the defense team. When it came time to try to negotiate a plea, he wouldn't do anything unless Caroline told him to do it and approved him to do it. Ugh. In the early stages, he was facing the death penalty. 
So they didn't have a competency hearing? Okay, this is Alabama. And the issue of competency was the first line of defense for his defense team. Yeah. And that process played out over two to three years after his arrest. So in a case like this, you do what the lawyers call you shrink shop. You find mental health people who will support your position that he was not competent at the time of the crime or he was not competent to stand trial. Meantime, the state, which has the greatest interest in sending him to death row, had their own state-supported shrinks who had a predisposition for disregarding all charges of mental incompetence. Now, in Brent Jr.'s case, it was very strange because oftentimes when you have competence, you don't have documentation. But in Brent's case, he had seen four different shrinks. Yeah, He had had 72 evaluations. And when I got the copies of his psychiatric records, which are something you really can't get in the year of HIPAA, but I got them. When I put them on the floor of my office, they were a foot and a half tall. And yet with all this documentation, the state was able to convince the judge that he was competent to stand trial, that he was malingering. He was making all this stuff up, which was baffling to me, having read all the psychiatric records that they brought into the case. So he takes a plea deal, is that right? He does. A plea of life without parole with the understanding that Brent would serve that time in a secure prison psychiatric unit. Okay. What is Robin, his sister's reaction to all of this? What happens with her? She hated her brother. She hated what happened. Okay. And in the end, when the final proceeding on the plea, when they had victim impact statements... Robin stood up to the judge and basically said, my brother should have gotten the death penalty Hmm. for the damage that he caused to us. Now that he's gone off to jail and he's serving life without possibility of parole, what do we learn about Caroline Scout and what ends up happening with her? She's a fraud, I'm assuming. (laughs) I think you're leading to that. She's a fraud. Yes. We learned that she had been in legal difficulty off and on for years. She had been scamming people throughout the West in California and Wyoming and South Dakota, mostly on the scam to build the counseling center. She had, under false pretenses, extracted half a million dollars from one woman alone Wow! who wanted to do good. The money went to build the counseling center, except it wasn't a counseling center. It was never a counseling center. It became her new primary residence. And there was another person she had scammed who threatened her with exposure and legal action. And she actually, she returned $30,000 to this woman to keep the case out of court. Hmm. We learned a number of us, I was involved in the investigation, several coroners were involved in the the investigation. It turns out she is not Native American, was never a shaman, was born in Southern California, Hispanic, although on her birth certificate, it says Caucasian. She was never any of the things that she had claimed to be. Now, she was also scamming people on her spirituality breathing scam that she had going on down in Boulder, taking advantage of many people who believed in spirituality and new age stuff. And she was scamming them to us one scam after another, but they never actually made it into the legal system because people were often so embarrassed that they had been taken by this person. They would rather write off the loss of the money that admit that they had been gullible and taken. And then she just is free to go on to the next person. Yes. So Brent has been convicted for more than 10 years. Is there a point where this man comes to any realizations about her and what's happened? No, he's totally under her sway. He basically builds a shrine to her in his cell with photographs of her. In a prison cell, you have your own commode to go to the bathroom. 
And when he would go to the bathroom, he would turn the picture of her away from him so she wouldn't be subjected. He believed that she was coming to his cell at night through astral projection and coming to him and speaking to him, even though at some point she cut off communication with him. And the cutoff of communication sent him into a further spiral. Now, the care he was getting in the, in the prison unit was what you might expect in an Alabama prison unit. And I've seen some correspondence with the prison psychologist saying, I don't think this is going to have a good outcome. And he tried to adjust, but he was not really well supervised. And at one point, they were going to move him to a different section of the prison. And he said, if you move me to a different section of the prison, I'll kill myself. Now, in a prison setting, in a psychiatric unit, people are going to say things like that. But they never followed up. And what he did was, he was a smart guy. He saved up Tylenol, which he had a script for, and saved it and saved it and saved it. And one day, took all of them, knowing that he would have liver failure as a result, and he died. Wow. What was her ending? Is she still around? She died of natural causes about uh, two years ago. But before that, she liquidated her holdings in Wyoming and moved out of Wyoming, but never suffered any consequences. Law enforcement, both in Wyoming and elsewhere, believed that she had a cache of money somewhere that could have been two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars. She sold the ranch for three hundred thousand dollars. Where the money went, nobody really knows. Now, I will say that in the months before she died, a number of us were pursuing her officially for involvement, not in the Springford murders, but in a questionable death that took place on her property in Wyoming, for which she was a beneficiary of several insurance companies. And the victim in that case, an apparent suicide, but under questionable circumstances. The person who killed himself was actually a friend of Brent Jr.'s from Boulder. Oh, wow. Was also psychologically vulnerable and who fell under her sway as well. So that's where the investigation was going at the time that she died. So there was no opportunity to compel her to have her day in court. There was a coroner's inquest about this death in which law enforcement tried to get her to the witness stand, but she lawyered up and was able to claim right of self-incrimination and not testify at the coroner's inquest in Wyoming. And the finding of that was that this death was not suicide, that it was homicide. Wow. And the members of the coroner's jury said they strongly suspect that she was the author of that crime as well. So in this woman's world are four deaths that we can connect to her including Brent, who might not have taken his own life had he not been involved. He certainly wouldn't have been incarcerated, most likely, if he hadn't been involved with her. Hopefully, right, he would have lived a life where he had gotten proper help at some point. Had that not fateful event happened where he crossed paths with Caroline Scout in the salon in Boulder, Colorado, none of this would have happened. He might have been ill. He might have had to been hospitalized. But bipolar is something that can be treated. If you have a strong support system, not to mention resources, financial resources, who knows? When I would read Charlotte's journal entries, her letters, her emails, she suffered so much saying, what's the best way? Is this the time for tough love? Should we cut them off financially now? Should we make demands? Should we have put down our foot when he wanted to leave Vanderbilt? Should we have put down our foot when he wanted to leave Naropa? What would have been the right thing? And she was often asking friends of hers 
who were professionals, who were psychiatrists. Yeah. She did every possible thing to save her son. And he was manipulated beyond belief. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.